0: We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Welcome back, everybody, to the next episode of the Keto Naturopath. I'm Dr. Carl Goldkamp, and uh, well, today... Like everybody in the United States, if not all in Western Europe and the world in general, we're living in the time of coronavirus, uh, otherwise known as COVID-19. Today, I thought we should talk about that in relationship to what does it mean to be on the ketogenic diet relative to being more uh, vulnerable to or less vulnerable to uh, COVID-19. And I think there's a lot you can do. So we're going to have that conversation with... Keto newbie Brian, who's no longer a keto newbie, um, he's our audio man who does his magic with that. But it's a great discussion to have. So, welcome, Brian. Welcome back again for another episode.
1: Ah, oh, thank you so much. I, I certainly appreciate being uh, being on the show with you again.
0: Absolutely. So, what are some of the thoughts that you have? Because I don't want to get too deep into some technical answers, but um, you have a grasp on you know shoot from the hip sort of questions that you think that, that you certainly you want to know. The answer to but uh others probably do as well
1: all right well uh first one is, uh my very first one is uh you know i i hope i'll all of you have you know all of the toilet paper and hand sanitizer necessary to make it mm. through this difficult time mm-hmm. <laughs> um but no uh seriously though um one of the first things that i was thinking about uh in terms of all of this is you know uh, it's my understanding that you know people who follow a ketogenic lifestyle tend to be uh Relatively and pretty healthy uh, individuals. And I'm, my biggest, uh, my biggest curiosity, I guess you could say is where do people who follow a ketogenic lifestyle fall in terms of them just being generally well enough to overcome any illness that they might actually have, not necessarily COVID specific, but I mean, now being that this is such a hot topic with, I mean, places literally within, I think, a 30 mile radius of where I am right now being quarantined and locked down by the National Guard. I mean, how how concerned should somebody who does follow a ketogenic diet be in terms of actually having this uh, illness communicated to them? And I mean, how how resilient should someone expect themselves to be uh, in terms of, let's say, they actually do get it? Um, you know, th- things along these lines. I, I, I'm I'm absolutely curious about that for sure. For sure.
0: That's no, it's a good question. I think a lot of people are thinking that as well. Uh, let me give you the big picture. The we'll go with the assumption that those who are actually on a ketogenic diet, so it would be a low carb, low carb, high fat ketogenic diet, so they could actually measure ketones if they did a ketometer finger stick. Um, in the range of one to three to four, you know, that's what I would consider ketogenic. Um, some people consider it less as being ketogenic. I do not. I'd actually say consider 1.5 to 4.5 as being an ideal range. That doesn't agree with everything that's out there. So, that person we're going to talk about. So, that person would mean that they are primarily a fat burner, except in times of Intense exercise or intense stress, which is a good place to be. What that also Mm -hmm. means is that their blood sugar, if you were to hook them up to a continual glucose monitor, a CGM, slap it on their arm, and follow them for the day, they would have a pretty boring flat line. In other words, their blood glucose, which is now kind of a secondary fuel to them, except in times Mm -hmm. of emergencies, is almost excuse me, it's almost never called upon. And so that boring flat line, that non-undulating, the non-to-peaks-and-troughs sort of sawtooth pattern, that's incredibly healthy. So the fact that they have level blood sugar, which means very little effort in the part of the pancreas, liver's taking some time off, it doesn't really have to do much in the way of breaking down insulin um, or making glucose from gluconeogenesis, and so given those that situation, that profile, that's incredibly healthy. That means that they are probably much better, much less likely to pick up a virus, viruses and bacterial infections. Having said that, so I'm speaking on that side of the equation, what they can do. They are less vulnerable. Absolutely. Um, it depends on what the bacterial infection is. It depends on what the virus is and how they connected with it, you know, is is it, um, they happen to, uh, taste something that had those, uh, elements on there, those pathogens. Well, that would be a bad move. Um, yeah. You know, so, so there you go. Um, so that's a big deal. So if they did nothing else and if they actually were, you know, a person who is, um, in a long-term ketogenic lifestyle, that's a big deal, uh, on mm-hmm. that. So that's how I would look at that. And so when you, that kind of personality, that kind of person. So we just qualified them in terms of a a, a lab, a lab profile, not in terms of personality or in dietary. That would then mean that they probably do not eat a lot of processed foods. They do not have much in the way or any at all of refined carbohydrates. And so once people start you know, having their Doritos and or their sugar, of course, um, all these things, that then starts to give them that undulation, that sawtooth pattern, and that sets them up to greater infu- infections. And it does affect your white blood cells, which are your immune system. And you can really get into that, but left it simple.
1: That's, that's good. that's obviously reassuring uh, for me at this particular point. I mean, um, I'm over here in Northern New Jersey. I'm literally 20 minutes away from New York City lots of people who travel in and out of the city. So, I mean, I could definitely say that we're in an area that's probably really sensitive to it right now. Um, so it's definitely a comfort for me, that's, that's for sure it's so it's so wild uh, i'm seeing my mom uh, my mother she's a professor um her school's been shut down for the next two weeks um i believe the local university here uh, william patterson they actually extended their spring break uh two weeks as well um a lot of the local churches in the area seem to be closing down um effectively either uh, effectively uh for the time being or for at least several weeks out so this is definitely something that's on my mind just because of how incredibly relevant it is in my particular area i know that there are a lot of places around the country right now that aren't necessarily you know that they don't need to worry as much as you know somebody in my geolocation might have to but uh definitely something that's been on my mind for sure Mm -hmm. um now i I remember um it, it was actually almost geez almost a month ago at this point um i remember you shared uh something in the facebook group uh about vitamin c and um You know, uh, I would really like for you to touch on that because one of the things that I find really interesting is that, you know, I've been to a lot of places where uh, food and, you know, uh, things that somebody might buy if they were to get sick, pharmacies, stuff like that, um, they seem to be very low on toilet paper. They seem to be very (laughs) low on hand sanitizers, soap, but I see vitamin C stocked to the brim. With no shortage. And that's just one of those things that I just wanted to touch on. I know the media is, is suggesting that if you need things like, for example, um, stuff like mucinex or, uh, you know, Tylenol to stock up. But in my opinion, I mean, from what I understand about them, those are things that you take when you're already sick. It's not necessarily a preventative measure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where Where exactly does vitamin C fall Uh, in terms of all of this? And how important would that actually be for somebody who isn't already taking it?
0: Good question. Happy to go there. Um, When these articles first started coming out of China, one doctor in particular seemed to have a a, a better following, and he did a few YouTubes on it. It's not a new thing. So uh, what he was advocating was just take vitamin C orally, which means it's in capsules and just that. And he gave a few examples of that. He was also advocating um, vitamin C IV treatments. So a little history on that, and then what vitamin D does, because I think it it was reasonable. I was kind of surprised to see it. You know, That's sort of uh, the low end of sophistication. And I think the brilliance is it was something that everybody could do, and not so much the IV, uh, that would be a hospital setting or some other special setting, but certainly orally. Mm. So- Vitamin C, everybody calls it an antioxidant. And guess what? It's not an antioxidant at all. It's a pro-oxidant. And what it does, it hmm. stimulates an antioxidant reaction from your body. So the net is, you can say, well, of course, it's a, it, the net effect is it's an antioxidant reaction big time that vitamin C caused. But vitamin C caused it by being a pro-oxidant, which your body had to respond to. Maybe it's a small point, hmm. but understanding that a little more literally- Uh, I think is helpful. So whether you take it, and there's a lot of different uh, formulations for vitamin C. You know, you have buffered vitamin C, which the reason uh, it's buffered is because ascorbic acid really isn't acid. And for those who are taking multiple grams of uh, ascorbic acid at one point, they can get a burn in their stomach. And so um, they take buffered and it's pretty much the same and you can take a lot more of it. The other aspect, so we we have the IV vitamin C and I'll jump to that. IV vitamin C really came on the scene about 20 years ago and perhaps even more, but 20 years ago is when I was in med school. And it's pretty much for the same reason. It, so IV, you're hooked up and it comes in as a drip. It's the same thing as a systemic oxidant that causes a systemic antioxidant reaction. So it's been used for, uh, as a co-treatment for various uh, cancer therapies. However, it was it was problematic for some docs because if they're giving a chemotherapy, and that's a pro-oxidant as well, the idea is supposed to kill certain things, and they don't want something to be an antioxidant. They don't want something to make their treatment less. And so it's arguably not appropriate for that in conventional circles. That answer isn't really definitive yet. Uh, I have a feeling they're going to be mutually exclusive in that doing vitamin C, IV has nothing to do with chemotherapy. But that's just my opinion and mm-hmm. others, but it's no you know, huge study on that. So now we go to another form of vitamin C, which is called liposomal. Liposomal simply means it gets into the cell more easily because it's in a special form. That came out mm-hmm. uh, less than 10 years ago, I think. And you can get it on Amazon. And um, so that just means you take a gram, that gram is gonna be more effective so let's imagine you take your vitamin C, liposomal or not, or take, pretend your two people are taking, one's liposomal, other's not. Liposomal can be either fluid or actually can be a tablet. So let's say they're both taking a tablet, one's liposomal, the other's not, that you will have a higher serum level of ascorbic acid, vitamin C, in the person who is not taking the liposomal uh, level, because the liposomal vitamin C will be quickly intercellular, which is really where you want it to, it to be in the net Mm. and to support your white blood cells and so on and so forth. So that's the difference between those two. Um, Back to your comment about uh, being in a store and saying they're well-stocked in vitamin D and they're out of toilet paper and all these other things. That speaks to the population in general. Most people don't know about that. Most people would not have seen the videos of the doc from China and saying this is what we're using and we're finding it very effective. And so... They're, mm. they're not privy to that. Uh, by contrast, uh, some of the people that are in the Facebook group or our coaching program, I invite them in to go to, uh, in essence, our pharmacy, which is called Wellevate. And they go in there and they're all sold out. So vitamin C only, mm. only in pure ascorbic acid now, the buffer is out, the uh, liposomal is all sold out. And yes, it will be replenished, but, you know, there's your supply chain sort of, you know, they will sooner or later who knows it's certainly not going to be overnight, overnight so it's a big demand there so where you have a focused knowledgeable group of uh physicians and doctors kind of getting their supplies from the same pool it's gone it's a little bit like saying hmm. how many masks are available at the the community hospital probably not many and they're probably all spoken for you know and so
1: yeah yeah
0: so yeah it's a big difference so
1: no for, for for sure there's a big difference um now uh i'm wondering just cuz uh, uh this specifically this week um i saw a couple of different articles one uh detailing a um a uh, a team in Saskatchewan that are developing a uh a uh, vaccine uh for the virus um i've also seen uh, there's a group in australia that's doing the same i think it's like a public private uh, organization of some sort that's actually, uh, I think their main purpose is to uh, try to keep preventable uh, communicable diseases preventable, um, as well as another another team in Israel that are uh, actively working on vaccines. Now, I'm not sure where your position on this uh, happens to be, but uh, haven't really heard very much in terms of what's actually happening with uh, the U.S. and trying to develop anything for this and where our stance on it is. But I mean, uh, where do you think currently, like uh, Big Pharma might actually uh, be placing the importance of this? And um, if we do see a a vaccine stateside, do you see that as being something that would be made publicly available for free the same way that the flu shot might be? Or do you think that this might be uh, another place where an opportunity could be taken uh, to sort of take advantage of what's actually happening happening right now with the pandemic to try to monetize it.
0: I think that I think both are happening, but I think that big farmers mm-hmm. going to win out in the end. And uh, yeah, it will be huge. You know, absolutely be huge. I mean, now that you have countries in lockdown, you know, anything that says that connects two words, uh, coronavirus with vex vaccination vaccine, will do well. You know, it's it's kind of like selling on Amazon. If saying anything, it's keto. It's boing. It's gone. Regardless of the quality. <laughs> so. Um, yeah. How effective it's going to be? Who knows? I don't think we're going to get any idea. Let's say it was starting tomorrow, that was available, and it goes everywhere. We won't know how effective it was until it's you know, looking back onto this year. So it's kind of a neutral question. But yeah, big pharma stands to do well. And that sort of lights up all the conspiratorial thinkers out there. And you know, it's too, too far for me to go in that direction or the value of vaccines, plus or minus, that's a very heated topic, just generally speaking. But yeah, they're going to come mm-hmm. out. It's they'll make big bucks in it, and they'll do just fine. And uh, I hope it's effective. You know, I mean. But at what I thought at this point, which w- would be really helpful, to um, I tried to call out sort of a uh, uh, rule of thumb information on the coronavirus COVID nineteen in terms of who's affected with it, and and basically it is the older people. And the stats are, you know, mortality rate. Over eighty is like fifteen percent. That's huge. But when you jump Hmm. on, when you jump under that, it's far less. It's now, and it depends where you want to get your information from. Wuhan in the early days, early days being a month ago, uh, it's going to be far Hmm. higher. And so, it, it is about the older, the elderly and who knows where elderly starts, but this is just the stat that I'm reading from one of the papers that I'm looking at. The incubation period is five to seven days, which means that exposure is five to seven. It's five to seven days after you've had that exposure. Uh, the (laughs) virus can last three hours. Uh, it can last on plastic and metal and wood. So therefore all those sanitizers, as much as I hate to use them, uh, they're necessary now. And, Mm -hmm. um, I guess it's sort of, I I wanted to go into the little bit of the, you know, there's two sides to this. And I'm going to sort of call out that is not get into the people saying, this is all hyped and it's not true and so on and so forth. They probably have a few points on that. But the question is, what path is the less risk to kind of comply with what we're hearing now in the news and everything else, which I'm going to go over in a second, or to say, hey, Mm -hmm. this is really nothing and I don't care. I think... um, Choosing the more conservative path is is pretty much the way to go. So if you're in quarantine, find something else to do with your mind, you know, and stay in <laughs> quarantine. I think that's a big deal. And the reason that's a big deal is, and a lot of the information comes from the 1918 plague in which worldwide 50 million, more than all of World War I, were killed. So it, it's hard to imagine. But so World War wow. I ended in 1918 and the in the Spanish flu, which actually didn't start in Spain, they think started in the United States, really started in, in nineteen sixteen through nineteen eighteen, and peaked in nineteen eighteen. Is that when you think about it, you just had a just had a world war, which I think there was maybe forty million killed, and then they come home, and yeah, the troops carried a lot of this around because that's where the troops were in high numbers and close proximity was the other variable. You know, then another fifty million, so that's a huge percentage of overt public mortality that everybody got to see how gory this was and how terrible it was. Um, wow, yeah. So it's it's quite a time. But what they found, even then, medicine was, was trying to have a public health procedure policy, which was really spotty in different parts. But what they found is that those cities that impl- implemented shutting down parades, shutting down public gatherings had far fewer outbreaks, far fewer mortality. So they kept everybody home or they shut down public things. And then in Philadelphia, which they chose not to, is kind of the example to look at what they 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 did not pay attention to it because it was they were told the guy who was the head of the health city health policy, the health department, uh, he was told that the virus had been identified. And so he thought, well, a vaccine was going to be coming out imminently. And therefore there was no Harm to be had in the future. Well, that was a wrong calculation. So there happened to be, I don't know what parade it was, but a big parade, everybody came out and it had the highest mortality in the country. So, you know, apart from how dire was that and how contagious and how uh, lethal was that virus back then, it really was putting those identifying factors aside and saying on a public health policy, Let's clamp this down so people don't gather in big numbers. It's just prudent. you know. So they're very truthful there, and it's kind of very mechanistic, and people kind of resent losing their, their freedoms, and that's their choices. But the data is there that that is very helpful. And so you had cities like St. Louis and Pittsburgh that were way ahead um, that had very little on the way of um, the impact of the flu back then. And um, there's graphs all over that if you just – they they kind of redo the Wuhan numbers, which they can't do. But if they if they were onto it sooner than they were and saying you know and locked down the city, they would have kind of shut this shut this off very quickly. So that idea is important. It's an important factor. So that's on the public side of things, and you have to kind of participate in that. As uh, as annoying as it is, but um, yeah. So on the on the on the private part, what you can do about your person is oh well, the other thing was about the elderly. It's 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 uh, so. Why is it the elderly? We we can kind of say, well, it's because we're getting old and their immune systems kind of gradually, you know, shutting down, or it's not as effective as it was. It's really what they call comorbidities. It's that they found that that um, this is out of Wuhan and then South Korea that those who were elderly that also had heart conditions, and then so heart condition. You know, it's a it's a big category. It's not just cardiovascular, but basically all the various related cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And after that, it was diabetes. And after that, it was hypertension. So those with high blood pressure that were on a medication called an ACE inhibitor, um, which is called an angiotensin-converting enzyme. Why would you care? It's an enzyme that goes between the kidney and the lungs. And so the lungs has a lot to do with if you're compromising the functions in the lungs while exposing somebody to a respiratory uh, virus, that's obviously going to compromise them. So that was that. That was interesting. Um, And so, but back to when you think about what is a what do diabetes and heart condition have to do? They have to do with, so those who are insulin resistant, then become diabetic, that they go on to have heart disease and they go on to having stroke. So it's it's a vascular disease, it's elevated blood sugars, it's elevated insulin. That's what those people have in common. Um, and so it almost gets back to your keto or your, your keto uh, question. So if you can bring down the level of your blood sugar as, as that boring flat line that it does not spike or hit troughs, um, you are far better off. And so those people that are keto, like we identified them, would not have these comorbidities. You know, they would not have, and so therefore they're out of that. Even if they're elderly, they, they're out of those uh, subgroupings. So hypertension, you can have non-vascular issues about hypertension if you, for other reasons, but uh, that's a, a lesser, and, then, and of course, if one's a smoker, they're they're the, nearly the top of the list as well.
1: Oh, wow. So now uh, I know that uh, I'm very pretty familiar in terms of what keto can do for somebody who is diabetic. Um, now one thing that, I, uh, I, I'm definitely not that versed on is where a keto, uh, where a ketogenic lifestyle would fall in line for somebody who is, uh, hypertensive. That's the, the other group that you just referred to, correct?
0: Right. Right. So it depends okay. on the Go ahead. Did, did I cut you off? Oh yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so effectively my question is, uh, where, where does keto fall for people who do actually have, uh, who do actually suffer from hypertension and you know, what, what changes. Could they could they see in their foreseeable future, and uh, how much time would it would it take if it is a positive effect uh, to start noticing uh, those types of changes? I mean, I understand that we're unable to really look at people's uh, you know uh, people's medical documentation in terms of this to to make a better determination. But uh, are there any expectations that somebody should have?
0: Yeah, I think so. Um, and there are different groups, and so um, the nice thing referring to our coaching program, we have now getting onto a semi-massive spreadsheet of, you know, different genders, uh, height and weight and their blood work. And so I would say that you actually can be a, um, of an obese person, a healthy, obese person and not be, have elevated blood glucose, not have elevated insulin. And it's what that speaks to is there's two ways to get fat, um, you can produce more and more fat cells, and that's a healthier way. So you have the weight, but you don't have uh, malfunctioning fat cells, adipocytes. So the healthy, heavy person, the healthy, heavy, or obese person would have hypertension. He would not have the labs that would show that he has a pathology. You know, he'd, he could ha- perhaps even have all normal. That's a healthy, heavy person. Um, what percentage are they? I would say they're probably... 10% or less, but they do exist. And we've had some in the program that, you know, want to lose weight and yet they're uh, healthy and their one medicated symptom or condition that they had was hypertension. So hypertension can come from being heavy period, but not necessarily from all the vascular issues, right? So you still have to help that person lose the weight because, For every pound you are overweight, over your ideal body weight, and you can look that up, it's another mile of capillaries for your blood to be pushed through. And that really depends on your heart, right? Your heart's the pump, and it's pretty narrow capillary to push, you know, single file red blood corpuscles and a few of the others uh, through that. And that's where the, the greatest resistance, so they call that peripheral resistance is another way of saying it, you know. So a very heavy person has a lot of miles of capillaries and therefore a lot of pressure that they have to make their heart work, hence hypertension. So as they start losing the weight, they start losing those capillaries, and uh, they come back to fewer and fewer, and that's how their blood, uh, their their hypertension will fall. And removing the idea that they have an adrenal problem, because that's a whole other category of hypertension. And so we'll remove endocrines because that's even a, I don't know, one to two or three percent. I doubt even that high for those uh, people to have hypertension. Um, So it's basically looking at weight that are diabetic, -diabetic, pre-diabetic, insulin-resistant people. Clearly, they're going to have it. Those who are healthy blood work still have the weight. They have a better chance of dropping it. So when they get the weight off, their blood pressure is going to resume to normal. So for keto, it would affect both groups. So keto would affect both groups. Why would it affect both groups? So dramatically affect the first group with all the labs that will improve. That's fun to watch. But it will improve both groups because when you drop the carbs, you're going to you know, get people obviously over to fat burning. And initially we have people sort of have high fat. So we call it low carb, high fat. We sort of box them in. And then after that, their own appetite tends to make them eat less and less fat. And they tend to burn more and more fat. So the keto world will, or the keto state will lead to weight loss for both categories, One is more lab um, transformational than the other, but it's the same outcome pretty much. They stick to that. They'll drop the weights. They can do intermittent fasting and all these other things to go along with. Still, it's the same thing. You're talking about the ketogenic diet. Um, Mm. But that's it. Yeah, and absolutely. So it should be implemented. So if you had a skinny or normal person, quote unquote, that had hypertension, yeah. you'd have to say, well, what is going on? And you, and therefore, you you are required to do some lab work. Is it adrenals, you know? And you can track these things down, you can find these things out. You know, are they uh, sarcopenic? You know, really have very little on the way of, they're unhealthy even though they don't look fat, heavy, excuse me. Um, so that's how you look at it. So for those thin or normal looking people that have hypertension, Then you'd have to sort of parse out what is that, what's going on here with that person.
1: Mm. Okay, no, that's good. Now, um, uh, I'm I'm actually uh, one of the many people that living in America that lives uh, or currently doesn't have any health insurance. But for anybody out there who uh, does have access to doctors, hospitals, things like that. is the is the current state that we're in in terms of you know how widespread this pandemic currently is and with how heightened everybody's sensitivities towards this particular subject is? I mean, should everybody who even is feeling any type of symptom at all uh, in terms of illness be going to to actually get checked uh, to see if they actually do have this? It's uh, it's my current understanding that at the, presently. The number of people that have actually been tested for this, and I'm not sure if this is the actual number, but this is the number that's been quoted a couple times, is uh, uh, roughly 11,000 people have gotten tested to see if they actually are positive or tested positive for uh, COVID 19. Uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's, uh, oh, I forgot which it was. I think it might be South Korea. South Korea, I think they're testing about 10,000 people per day. Mm-hmm. Um, so their numbers are going to be a lot more uh, accurate in terms of who is and who isn't affected. Uh, but how important are those numbers i mean uh as a as a nation should should we be more concerned about testing the general public to see who is and who isn't affected and if you are a person who is sick in um in in any way, should you be jumping the gun immediately and saying, "Oh, I need to get tested for this um you know be it that you have the uh the options available to you to actually get that done
0: That's a good question um I think people think that way. Actually, um, first of all, I don't think there's that many kits, you know, um, we now have the guy who, who's from China, he's sending over a million kits because of blood test kits. So I don't think there's that many kits. So those choices aren't available, but let's say they were, let's say it's like South Korea and I think South Korea debt, well, it's a smaller country, so they can box it in, they can test everybody and you, you bet they're going to sort of say, all right, you got it over here to the left and you don't have it. You can go back home. Um, so they can do it in a country like that. you can do it in countries like Norway and, and, you know, all the Scandinavian and most of European countries. Uh, ours is too big and cumbersome and, um, not that overall, uh, knowledgeable if you ask me. Um, so if they could, would they? Sure. Should they go down? So we live in New Bern, North Carolina. Um, yeah, there's hospitals near here. That's the good news. Uh, do I think if I went in, I think I would... I would need some symptomology. It would be um, the doctors are already overwhelmed. I mean, with people curious about that, there's already flu season anyway. And there is a flu going around, by the way, in addition to the coronavirus. So um, they're kind of booked up. So you'd be adding to the healthcare system out of curiosity in this country. In Korea, South Korea, uh, that's a good thing. You know, they're they're pro you do that and get in and get tested and then go home or don't go home, go into quarantine. Uh, we don't have the services for that. Um, hence we had more die in World War in the uh, in the span- in nineteen eighteen in any other country. We're also larger too, but we had per capita fewer services. So I think that curiosity would drive that. And if you actually had the uh ability to go and make an appointment with your doctor or if they have a general facility to go in and get tested, um not a bad thing, but it, on the path to doing so, you would then put yourself into people that shared your same concern and you may go into groups of a hundred or a couple hundred people. And therefore that's kind of a place you don't want to go. You want to stay away from, they call it, uh, social distancing, you know, four to six feet from people and in, in terms of this whole quarantine thing. So, uh, you'd be upping your risks to find out if you have this or not. So I would say that's a interesting question, more intellectual, uh, to an extent. And I would say, uh, bide your time. If one is not experiencing symptomology by their time, uh, endure the social isolation as best you can and, um, see what you can do to be creative, to have that time go by. But until, until we're kind of at, uh, not flood stage of people really thinking and going into their healthcare practitioner to get checked out, I would sort of hold off on that. If you are experiencing symptom, symptomology, absolutely. Even if it is just the flu, you need to differentiate is the flu or is it not? But I would also ask. I would also say, like here in New Bern, if I'm experiencing flu-like symptoms um, and nobody else has even been in this part of the the state with uh, coronavirus, I would then think it's probably the the flu. Mm. Okay. I suppose
1: so. No, that makes sense. I actually just double checked uh, while you were giving uh, that response there, and um, at this point, uh, according to tests done by the CDC on March 12th of this year, so far uh, we. Uh, the country has undergone 13,624 uh, tests uh, performed. Uh, uh, looking up at the top of the list, it's China and South Korea, uh, China with over 300,000, mm-hmm. uh, 20 tests, and uh, South Korea with 248,000 change.
0: Wow, yeah, so, that's yeah,
1: huge. That it's- is huge. And I mean, you know, I, I, one of those things that I find a little polarizing is, yeah, size size absolutely matters in, in this particular case um, especially with like you know we have particular spots of the country just based on uh, infrastructure with you know uh, uh, travel and um, and uh, transit and everything mm-hmm. uh, you know I, I was I was kind of expecting to see a much higher number uh, for the United States in terms of test perform but I, I can understand uh, what you were saying there you know if you're not feeling symptomology you know I, I would probably stay away from it. But um but yeah, it's just definitely something that's concerning to me just because, you know, uh how how do we really gauge this? What's what's the barometer uh, of all this if we're basing our numbers, you know, uh domestically on more or less what's happening with other people in the world versus, you know, uh how many people have actually uh have have had this communicated to them, how many people are recovering, so on and so forth.
0: You know, yeah, the
1: data portion of it.
0: Yeah. Uh, well those numbers are huge. I, I, I think that I don't think the United States is going to get up to three hundred thousand at all in terms of being able to test <laughs> that they, they just you know, when this when this first started, Trump thought it was a joke. That's not about anti Trump. <laughs> it's just that at the high levels of decision making, he thought, hey pff, don't worry about it. It's gonna pass. And so it's it's hard to know. Uh it obviously yeah. that's what you call on your experts. But yeah, no, I think that it's one of those times. Uh the examples it's used to make uh, social, iso- social isolation be a good thing is saying, well, this is actually what happened to Isaac Newton during the plague. They were all quarantined. And it was during his quarantine that he came up with his, you know, his different laws and so on and so forth and, and developing of calculus. So oh, there you go.
1: That's super cool. I had no idea. That's <laughs> that's awesome.
0: So you can say if it wasn't for the yeah. plague, uh, he wouldn't have had the time to really focus on just one thing and get it done. <laughs>
1: Imagine that. Calling all thinkers. Yeah, Now's yeah. your chance. Let's do it.
0: Right. Um, I was going to mention a few other things that I advise people. These are kind of right up along the vitamin C sort of thing, now that you know how vitamin C works. And that's probably your, your biggest, simplest thing for most people to do, providing they have access. Sure, yeah. The other would be, um, so vitamin D, you don't know if you need vitamin D or not. That's usually a blood test first. Um, but if you're in the northern latitudes like we are, and certainly where you are, that, and if you're indoor most of the time, you can sort of assume a low vitamin D So um, in the winter months. And so uh, people take 5,000 IUs of vitamin D3 slash K2 together. Um, I only take maybe three or four days a week do I do that in the winter months, which are now changing for us down here in North Carolina, but that's prudent. And having seen enough patients come through and say, yep, they're low, they're lowest in January, and the reason they're low in January and then February, that corresponds to the flu season. Uh, it's certainly something that one could um, get and take without having to get their their labs, but also stop in a, a couple months, you know, so don't go nuts. I've had people tend to not hear this part. I've had people get back to me and say, I'm taking 20,000 units of vitamin D a day. And I said, stop, you know, you're going to get, you're going to get bone spurs. You're going to get... Uh, hypercalcification and so do not do that take a couple weeks off and then if not three weeks off and then just be prudent so three or four days a week i think is fine so i, I, I the reason i say this is because I've also had people you know now that i've had to look at a lot of um vitamin d levels now is it when people are in like eight or nine, unheard of, they are very vulnerable. So if they can get up to 30s and 40s and the range goes well up to over 100, shoot for 60 as kind of the the medium numbers, those people that had very little vitamin D would really benefit from it. So after vitamin C, it's vitamin D, D3 slash K2. Um, then I recommend what, a thing called NAC, which is N-acetylcysteine, why would you know that? It's a precursor to glutathione. Glutathione is like the, the the biggest antioxidant in the body. So you're you are getting behind antioxidants, just like vitamin C did it in a different way. Um, it's a helpful thing to have, and also it dries out the lungs. I don't mean it doesn't parch them, but it you know it tends to be a mucolytic. In fact, you can go into most drugstores, and you'll see uh, glucomus is also NAC for that reason, and. Um, oh think that's about the top three that i i look at for the most part you know that that should be simple enough doable enough without being too confusing
1: okay okay um i got another uh real quick one too um Oh, actually, um, as I'm looking a little further, apparently there is something called the COVID tracking project, which actually added about eight thousand uh, tests done. Uh, so we're the actual, the more accurate number is closer to 20, 22,000 for mm-hmm. those tests. But uh, about what you were saying about vitamin C and vitamin D, um, uh, I'm not sure if this is factual, uh, based on on facts or not. So you could probably clear this up for me. But it was my understanding that. For example, there are certain uh, vitamins, supplements that really only work best in conjunction with other ones. Uh, And the one that was recommended or that's been brought to my attention most is uh, you need calcium to absorb vitamin D or vice versa. Is there anything, is there any validity to that? And if so, is there anything in terms of vitamin C that you could be taking uh, that would uh, help your body best absorb that?
0: Uh, the vitamin D, so the vice versa would have been the the answer to that one. You need vitamin D to absorb your calcium. You don't need calcium to absorb right, vitamin right. D. And often, by the way, is a lot of people do take calcium because they're doing it for their bones. Um, they do take calcium and they get these calcium nodules in their skin. So, vitamin D is the thing that uh, sorts out. It activates your calcium for. I'm skipping a number of steps, but it activates your calcium to make it so it can be used in your bone matrix, Um, and that's important. And K2 tends to activate vitamin D3, so they kind of are a little bit of a set. You can even say magnesium helps out that those two, and therefore it's a trilogy. So um, you don't necessarily magnesium is kind of the greatest efficiency of anything out there. Anybody, so magnesium is an easy thing to take, and it's hard to take too much. If you take too much, you'll get loose stools and uh, but in the mean, in the middle range, it's good for heart. It's good for muscles. It's good for everything. Um, uh, but vitamin D helps you absorb the calcium. Uh, very few people are deficient on calcium. It's just that it's, they're not absorbing it. So it's usually something else that makes them calcium deficient that they're not, you know, not absorbing it. Um, on the vitamin C, is there anything about bioflavonoids, which is usually found in nature with the vitamin C are sometimes helpful, but, um, it doesn't have to be, you know, liposomal. If you're looking for the most effective, liposomal is the most effective thing that you can buy. And and I believe liposomal is on most grocery store shelves at this point. If not, you can find it. And if it's not sold out on Amazon, you can certainly find it there as well.
1: Okay. No, uh, good to know. Thank you. Thank you for clearing that up for me. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's keeping it simple and having people really say, you know, there's some logical things I can do. Uh, I don't know. It, it, and this is not even going as it true or not. We, we do know there was a lot of deaths in China and that was a time in which they didn't uh, do social distancing because they didn't know about it. They built these huge hospitals, which is kind of amazing. Um, so now it's just like, just practice practice a more conservative social distancing right now. Um, I will not say don't worry about it, but if this is too much stress in your life, then, you know, Learn to chill and don't worry about it. Just do the social. The number one thing to do would be the social distancing, I believe, self-quarantine. Um, and after that, obviously, keep up your fluids. You know, um, stress in and of itself. If you're stressed out. That makes your your immune system a little more vulnerable. Um, but, you know, let it blow over. It would be my say, you know, let it blow over. Do a few smart things. If you want to do the vitamin C and the vitamin D and the NAC, do that. Fluids are really important. Oh, I know. Let's get back to the Tylenol and the idea is if people oh, start right. you know it's this is a big actually naturopathic question you know when people start having a fever do you automatically take the aspirin or the tylenol or the um or any of those well the the truthful conversation is without you know making everybody argue with each other is depends on how high the fever is the fever is self-induced to to cook yourself, if you will, to kill the virus or bacterial infections. Um, fevers are usually much higher in, in bacterial infections. And so it, uh, that's usually one of the tell cell signs of a bacterial infection is that when you suddenly have, just like a child's, children can get fevers very quickly and they can fall very quickly, um, like veterinarian medicine actually as well. Um, but- that's usually driven if it, if it spikes up quickly, it's a bacterial infection. It's not a viral infection. A viral fever is something that creeps up slowly. It usually does not get up as high. High meaning it usually doesn't get up to uh, 105 or 106 or 107, which are pretty high fevers. Uh, it may get up as high as 103, maybe 104, but unusual, but it's a slow creep up. Okay. So those are the two different profiles on how to have a fever, so to say, or why you have a fever. Then the question is, If you start feeling feverish at 101 or at 97.9 and you take an aspirin, you're actually preventing your body from helping itself take care of the infection it's exposed to. So if you're thinking that, well, I'll take this now because I could be one of those people who have a really high fever and I've just presented my, I prevented myself from having a high fever and therefore getting really, really sick. No, what you did is... Um, and we can't tell if you're going to be one of the people that had a high fever. Uh, what you did is you prevented, you enter, you intervened in a healthy immune response, and you now are driving your infection deeper than it would have been otherwise. You'll have a greater wow lung problem, and you'll and who knows where it goes after that. You'll probably get into the heart and so on and so forth. So, to fiddle around with something uh, an automatic response too soon is a problem. Have that stuff at the ready if the fever gets too high that's when you take that stuff and if fever Whoa. gets too high in addition to taking the aspirin or then you don't know, do aspirin with kids because the thing calls ray syndrome but uh tylenol which does have an effect on the liver um you have uh, lost my train of thought here but basically you you use that when it gets to that point but let's say and i have not I'm imagining a case that has not been true in my life or anything I've seen that somehow that's not working. Well, then that's when you see those pictures of cold towels on the forehead, ice, ice bath, and so on and so forth. Um, You can even go into hydrotherapy, which is really interesting and how to have that. So, but that's basic advice. You know, let the fever go for a little bit should you experience it. And more than likely, it will not be a high fever with a virus.
1: Okay. And um, as we said before, if you are that particular person and you are feeling uh, some symptoms uh, with the current state of how everything is right now, you probably should take the steps to go get yourself checked out, right?
0: Yep. Yeah. If you can, and the facilities there and just be thinking in the back of your mind, well, am I going to sit in a room with the waiting room of two to 300 people that are probably sick with the flu as well, I would say that would make you think, maybe I shouldn't do that, <laughs> right? So, but right? if you're feeling yeah. if you're feeling badly and have the symptomology, yeah, call somebody and it's like your doctor and saying, this is what I'm feeling and they will probably direct you. And um, yeah, try not to be one of the many waiting in line to be checked out. Try to see if you can get ahead of the line in some way.
1: Uh, So uh, one of the things I was thinking about is, uh, you know, uh, quarantine or uh, suggested self-quarantine by, uh, you know, everybody uh, talking in the media, uh, people in uh, government, be it national or global or uh, local. Uh, One of the one of the things I actually thought about and I was thinking about it in jest, to be honest. But, uh, hey, if you're following a ketogenic diet and times get tough, remember... uh, we can do a day, uh, we can do a day fast if, if absolutely necessary. And I'm totally prepared to go one day fast one day eating, uh, should food get scarce in this area. But I'm not really so concerned about that, but just something that I was thinking about just, uh, that's
0: that's a great point. You know, it's like, uh, you can, you no longer have to fear going from meal to meal to meal, you know, skip a day, you know, have your fluids, your coffee, whatever you want to have. And, um, you know, parse things out as they go, but yeah, you have the capacity to do it with with least pain, um, as opposed to the general population, for sure.
1: Yeah. So I guess uh, I guess our food's worth twice as much, huh?
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Well, cool. Uh,
1: that's basically uh, everything that was on my mind in, in terms of all this. I don't know if you had anything else uh, you wanted to say before we closed out today.
0: No, I think it's a great conversation. Uh, people are thinking about this. It's that and. You know, it's to not abandon keto and being uh, having a ketogenic lifestyle because you're actually doing the right thing. Um, I did. uh, I think we did a podcast earlier on. I did a podcast earlier on about um, viral versus bacterial and ketogenic diet and also certain things in the Facebook group. But it's the right direction. It's very supportive. Is it going to be definitive in terms of helping somebody who would have had problems otherwise? Nobody can say that, but they can say that this puts them and at far less risks than otherwise they would have. Nice. Okay. Till next time, Brian, we got more talking to do.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Till next time. And again, thank you for, uh, thank you for all your time and and thank you so much for answering these questions that I had, you know, with uh, the uh, absolute hysteria that's been going on right now. um, It's it's very comforting to be able to have this conversation with somebody about this who uh, actually understands a little bit better what's happening. You know, then somebody like myself, a, a layman's person, just out here, just getting fed whatever it is that I'm getting fed by the media, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, friends, neighbors, family, all that stuff.
0: Good. No, it was a great conversation. Till then, take care.
1: All right, take take
0: care. Hi, this is Doctor Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to Doctor Goldcampaketonaturalpath dot com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So uh, please keep The question's coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might have been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to, you know, go down as anybody, any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when, history and evolution, and epilepsy, and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, such as schizophrenia, or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also just for people and losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto. And so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of, at least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are there other factors? So in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered certain metabolic lab results, and we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered, and I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.